Now, you know, today I want to begin by doing something a little bit different. I'm just going to um, look at uh, our passage today in context. We're going to read a little bit more, and then we're kind of going to go from there. We're continuing our sermon series on Luke, and this idea of um, within the gospel of Luke is a call to follow Jesus. And so what is that call? Who does Jesus call, and what does that call look like? And so the passage that we're going to look at, uh, we're going to begin at is... Um, when Jesus calls his disciples. And so it reads like this. It starts at Luke uh, chapter 6, verse 12, and it begins like this. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, I love that he prayed first. Jesus is always a man of prayer. You read this in the Gospel of Luke all the time. He goes to a secluded place to pray, especially when he's making his big decisions. So when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And then, looking at his disciples, Jesus said the following, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. And then our final slide, then Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So this is the word of the Lord. And so, hey, awesome. We're getting it. We're getting it. And so for those of you who don't know uh, me, my name is Albert. I am the campus pastor here at Tapestry Richmond. Welcome to you. We're so glad that you can join us. Like I was saying before, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And um, the one thing that our family is going through right now, or maybe Jesse and myself, but Kyla kind of too. Krista still kind of doesn't know what's going on. She just opens her mouth, feed me, put me to sleep, all that stuff. But the thing that, you know, is kind of, uh, we're talking a lot about at our dinner table right now is um, school. Because we're currently looking for an elementary school for Kyla. She's going to kindergarten next year. And, you know, during this process, it's actually caused me to reflect a lot on my own elementary school days. And now, maybe it's because of uh, my fear for what's going to happen or what's in store for my little one. Or maybe it's because I can be overprotective in nature. Or uh, it's, maybe it's because of my parental nature. Uh, in my reflecting of elementary school, I've been thinking about the most savage 
and the most difficult things that I remember about elementary. And the two things that I really remember are, number one, the game Red Rover. Man, that game was like the Hunger Games for elementary school. There were so many ambulances called to my elementary school, like at least three, I'm not kidding, over this game of Red Rover. If you are in the crowd right now and you do not know of this game, you have never played this game, you are blessed. Um, but if you are curious, you can ask a friend, what is this game that we played for years on end, Red Rover? So that's one of the things I was like, man, this, this is kind of savage, this is kind of strange. But the other thing that stuck out even more than Red Rover was picking teams. Right? I mean, that was pretty crazy. It was like in a classroom, you pick out two team captains, and they just take turns picking. And it was like this slow and painful reveal of the social hierarchy of a class, right? The strongest are chosen first, and then the best, and then the most popular, and it goes on and on and on until the crowd whittles and thins until there's only one person left, and that last person is not picked. No, no, no. That last person is kind of just begrudgingly accepted and taken on up into their team because there is nobody left. How absolutely savage, you know. And then in this weird kind of connection of things, this weird kind of like, you know, interconnection, um, as I was looking at our passage today, I became reminded again that God doesn't really pick teams the way that we pick teams, right? I mean, we still look for the best and the strongest and maybe the most popular, but God doesn't pick teams the way that we do. God does not pick the strongest. He does not pick the best. Instead, when we look at the Bible from beginning to end, we read that he often chooses the weak. He often chooses the powerless. He often chooses the less favored over the more favored. God has this upside-down way of doing things, this way that often goes counter to the ways and the expectations of the world we find ourselves living in. And you know, from the passage that we looked at, I think it's, it's clear to see that Jesus ministered out of that same kind of inversion. Jesus ministered out of that same kind of upside-down reality. Jesus turned so many social expectations on their head by just how he lived and what he taught and who he called to follow him. And I think the passage that we're looking at today is just such a good window into this um, upside-down reality that Jesus works out of, right? The passage that we're looking at today is just such a wonderful way of looking into this upside-down reality that Jesus works out of and, might I add, actually invites us into as his disciples, and so today, we're going to look at Luke's account of the Beatitudes. We're going to spend most of our time focusing on this collection of four blessings and four curses that we have just read together. This, these Beatitudes that Jesus has just told his disciples. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how they, gave us, they give us a window into first a true kingdom, and then a true blessing, and finally, a true wealth. So we're going to look at these Beatitudes and see how they give us a window into a true kingdom, a true blessing, and a true wealth. And so as we begin, let's look at the blessings and those blessings and curses one more time, right? It reads like this. Jesus is talking to his, his apostles here. He's saying, uh, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now 
for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Next slide, please. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. What an upside-down collection of teachings, right? And so first to dive into it, we're going to talk about a true kingdom. And to kind of see or to kind of like follow along what I'm talking about, we're going to talk about, we're first going to um, take a picture of the bigger context of the biblical story. And you know, what we see is when we look in the biblical text, we see that ever since that sin turned the world upside down, God has wanted to turn the world right side up again, right? And so how God decided to do it, what God decided to do was he started with a person, Abraham. And that person became a family, and that family became a tribe, and that tribe became a group of 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes became a nation by the name of Israel, a kingdom, if you will. And God's hope for this nation, God's hope for this little kingdom in the ancient Near East was that they would live the way that God intended people to live. That they would live in this completely contrary way to the expectations of the world so that they could be blessed. And not only so that the nation of Israel could be blessed, but also so that they could draw the world into blessing of life with God, right? So God builds up this nation, and he calls this nation to live according to his upside-down ways so that they can be blessed and so that they could draw the world into blessing with God. And so what God did was he bound himself up with Israel with something called a covenant. And a covenant is kind of like marriage vows but with teeth. It is a promise of forever faithfulness with consequences attached. So in a covenant, along with its vows, it has a collection of blessings if you stay faithful to the covenant and a collection of curses or woes if you are unfaithful to the covenant. And then many of us know how this story goes, right? Because um, God is faithful to the covenant with Israel. God is always ready to bless Israel, but Israel was never able to stay faithful to God. And so instead of living in the blessing of life with God and walking in his ways, they experience the woe of living apart from him. Their nation becomes split. They become conquered. They become exiled for many years. And in the end, they are never able to draw the world into the blessing the way that God had intended for them to do. But then, remember Isaiah, because in Isaiah, we recall that Israel had this hope, though. They had this hope that one day a true king would come, and this true king would finally bring God's upside-down kingdom to earth. That this true king would one day make a way for the world to enter into the blessing of life with God. And then in the Gospel of Luke, what do we read? We read that Jesus comes onto the scene. 
and he begins to heal, and he begins to teach with authority, and then he chooses 12 disciples, one for each tribe of Israel. And the first thing he tells them collectively is these, are these four blessings and these four woes. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. He is establishing a new Israel. He is establishing a new kingdom around his disciples. He is joining himself to these apostles like God joined himself to Israel long ago. He is saying, I am the true king. I am the one that is bringing God's upside-down kingdom to earth. He is saying, the long-awaited kingdom of God is finally breaking into the world, and it is finally come through me. And that's the thing, right? And the thing is, you can't just read the teachings of Jesus and see a wise teacher. You can't. You cannot just read the teachings of Jesus and see a good example. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, in all the other Gospels that we have, he makes claims on his identity that go so far beyond just being a wise teacher or a good example. And church, if Jesus is who he said he was, not only is he the Lamb of God who died on the cross for our sins, but Jesus is also the Lion of Judah who invaded earth with his new kingdom. And even now, he is sitting on his cosmic throne, and he is bringing the fullness of that new reality. He is bringing the fullness of that upside-down kingdom to earth. And you know, church, because of that, the Beatitudes do not just tell us that Jesus is establishing this new Israel around his apostles. But the Beatitudes also give us a picture of this upside-down reality that we as his disciples are called to live in. In other words, the Beatitudes give us a picture of discipleship. They show us what it looks like to follow King Jesus and live as a citizen of the kingdom that he is ushering into the world today. And that's hard, isn't it? I mean, that's challenging and that's a little bit confusing. Because I think part of what makes the Beatitudes so challenging is it's so opposite to the things that we tend to value. It is so opposite to the way that we tend to work. You know, the people that we celebrate in our culture, the people that we write biographies about, the people that we put on talk shows are people who were often once poor and hungry and excluded and then became rich and revered. The people that we tend to celebrate are people that go completely opposite to the way of the Beatitudes. And so I think when we look at the Beatitudes and we consider what it means to live out of the Beatitudes, it's, it's hard for us to even imagine what that looks like because it's so upside down. It's so opposite to our expectations. And so, church, I think a way for us as a community to begin to consider what it means to live out of the Beatitudes is to first consider what it means to be blessed. That's going to be our way in, to first consider what it means to be blessed. And that's the second thing we're talking about today, right? A true blessing. So let's frame the context a little bit more. So Jesus is directly call, talking to these um, disciples, these apostles that he's called, right? And these, these disciples, they have just left their wealth. 
They have completely left their stability. They have left everything in order to follow Jesus. And for the rest of their lives, they are going to be persecuted, they are going to be rejected, and they're going to be impoverished. And I think that Jesus knew that. He knew that even as he was telling his Beatitudes to these people. But then in our passage, Jesus is looking at them and he's telling them that they are blessed. You are blessed. You are better off. Why? How? How could Jesus say such a thing? And you know, church, to understand how Jesus could say this, we need to look at the meaning of the word blessed itself. And I think that, I mean, I think we need to look at it because honestly, I feel like that word has been co-opted by our culture a little bit, right? Because so often we use the word blessed when we feel like we're doing well in the world. Like, for example, look at all this new stuff I have. Look at all my new toys. Hashtag blessed. Or, hey, look at how comfortable I am. Look at my toes out on the sand and this book that I'm reading and this sunset in the background. Hashtag blessed. Look at how blessed I am. Or, for example, oh my goodness, look at what I'm eating. This is delicious. I am so lucky to be eating such good food and I am going to be so full today. Hashtag blessed, right? But you know, church, to the readers and to the writers of the New Testament, to be blessed had nothing to do with that. To be blessed had a lot less to do with people's state in the world, their state in the world, and it had a lot more to do about their state with God. To be blessed has a lot less to do with your state in the world, and it has a lot more to do with your state in God. To be blessed has a lot more to do with having God's favor, right? And so Jesus, he's sitting there with his disciples. He's looking at them, and he's saying, look, I know you have nothing. I know you just left everything, but you have me. You have my fellowship. You have my favor. You have my faithfulness, so you are blessed. And you know, church, I think this gives us an idea of what it means to live out of the Beatitudes. It's to live in Christ's blessing. It's to live in his fellowship and favor before all other things. It's to seek his, his kingdom and him over seeking after our own wealth and our own contentment or our own happiness or our own power. And if we look at the Beatitudes from a spiritual standpoint, the Beatitudes even begin to tell us how we can do this. Right? So the Beatitudes, the four blessings that we have there are, for example, blessed are the poor or blessed are those who hunger, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are excluded. And if we look at that from a spiritual standpoint, then we see that, for example, we live in the fellowship and the favor of Christ when we acknowledge our spiritual poverty. We live in Christ's blessing when we acknowledge our spiritual poverty when we stop thinking that we have it all together, when we stop thinking that we're oh so self-sufficient uh, self and we instead remind ourselves of how much we live in God's grace. Or another example, we live in the fellowship and favor of Christ. We live in Christ's blessing when we hunger for God, when we are not satisfied with our relationship with him, but instead we desire and we strive to know him more and more, and we desire to have more of him in our lives. 
Or for example, we live in the fellowship and the favor of Christ. We live in his blessing when we mourn our own sin. We mourn our own brokenness. When we don't just turn a blind eye to it or we don't just find some kind of justification for it, but we grow to love the Lord so much that it hurts us when we hurt him. It hurts us when we let him down. Or, for example, we live in the fellowship and the favor of Christ. We live in the blessing of Christ when we value him more than our social comfort or our need to be accepted. And we are willing to be looked down and excluded for his sake. And you know, church, when we look at the Beatitudes in this way, what we see is the promise in the Beatitudes is when we pursue Christ... When we put Christ first and we go to him in our spiritual poverty and in our hunger and in our brokenness, what we will find is he will embrace us. He will fill us. He will feed us more than you ever could if you were trying to fill and feed yourself. Because why? Because you are blessed. Because you are loved by the king. Because you are a citizen of the kingdom. So he is quick to receive you in your poverty, right? And so, church, there is, there is definitely that spiritual component to the Beatitudes, right? They carry with them this idea that to be a follower of King Jesus is to, and to live as a citizen of his upside-down kingdom today, it is to be poor in spirit. It is to hunger after God. It is to mourn our own sin and brokenness. In fact, Matthew's account of the Beatitudes Jesus, in that account, Jesus actually says, not just blessed are the poor, but he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But you know, that means that the gospel accounts are actually somewhat unclear as to the kind of poverty that Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes, right? Is it, is Jesus talking about spiritual poverty? Is it um, blessed are the poor in spirit? Or is Jesus talking about physical poverty, is Jesus actually saying, blessed are the poor, right? Which one is it, Jesus? And I think, church, one of the reasons for this kind of ambiguity is because the two are connected, spiritual poverty and physical poverty. The two of these poverties are somehow connected. We see this connection with Jesus' disciples. After all, the disciples of Jesus um, that we're talking about in our passage were both kinds of poor, were they not? They had this spiritual hunger, this spiritual desire to follow after Christ. And in order to be with him, they became physically poor. Their spiritual um, poverty and their physical poverty were connected. And this is the last thing that we're going to talk about today. We're talking about true wealth. And so spiritual and physical poverty are somehow connected. But look, let's get something straight. By saying that, I'm not saying that if you're broke, that means that you are going to go to heaven, right? It's not connected in that way. It doesn't work that way. And I'm also not saying that if you are a Christian, you are going to necessarily be broke. I'm, not, I'm also not saying that. But I will say that if you are poor, if you are struggling paycheck to paycheck, that kind of thing can open you up to your own insufficiency. It can make you see your own need for grace in your life in a way that can make you receptive to the grace of the gospel. Right? 
So I'm say, I am saying that. And I am also saying that there are trappings that come with wealth. There are trappings that come with comfort that can affect your ability to desire Christ and his kingdom. And you know, church, we see that work out in Christ's ministry all the time. I mean, in the Gospels, we read about this rich young ruler, right, who reluctantly refuses to follow Jesus because he has become too attached to his wealth and his possessions. Or we see Jesus teaching his disciples that you cannot serve both God and money, that the love of money can create in us this desire and this devotion for money that can rival and even overtake our desire to know and love God and have God in our lives. Your spiritual, uh, your physical wealth can affect your spiritual poverty. Do you see that? And so it behooves us to at least be cautious with our wealth, to not always think that our wealth is a blessing, because sometimes our wealth can take us away from blessing. Our wealth can take us away from relationship with God. So that's one of the ways that physical and spiritual poverty are connected. But let me show you another connection. Let's say, for example, you are choosing to invest in a stock package or a, a mutual fund package, right? And one of these packages has lower returns, significantly lower returns. But it invests in companies that do a lot of social good and a lot of good in the world. And the other package that you are choosing between, it has fantastic returns. Fantastic. But it invests in companies that you know treat the environment poorly, treat its employees poorly, and treat the social fabric poorly. Probably one of the reasons why the returns are so high is because they're doing things like this, right? And so let me say, I think the more you value Christ, the more you value his kingdom first, the more you place that before your wealth, the easier it will be for you to walk away from the higher payday, right? Why? Because you're not trying to maximize your wealth, because you don't serve it, because you don't value it as highly. You know, living out of the Beatitudes give us this strength and it gives us this integrity to not be controlled or to compromise over worldly things like our wealth or our contentment or our happiness or our power. And church, that also means that if you are engaging in this very difficult discipline of valuing God above all other things, including your wealth, it will directly affect your earning potential. Right? We see that in the example. It will directly affect your earning potential. It will directly affect your comfortable lifestyle because you're trying to maximize your relationship with God. You're trying to maximize your blessing, your blessed life with God and not your wealth, not your power, not your reputation. In church, that's why if you are following Jesus, and if you are living out of the ways of this upside-down kingdom, there will constantly be times where you will experience a financial cost to that living. There will constantly be times where you will experience a strain on your comfortable life. Because in many ways, you are sacrificing your wealth and your lifestyle for an even greater wealth and an even greater life. Right? Because in many ways, you are sacrificing your current comfort for an even greater and even fuller comfort. And you know, church, I think in a nutshell, I think that's a 
big part of what Jesus is encouraging his disciples to do in the Beatitudes. He's calling them to look past their present comfort to a deeper future delight. Right? He's calling them to look past their present comfort to a deeper future delight. In a way, Jesus is encouraging us as his disciples to do the same thing that we encourage our kids to do when we encourage them to learn an instrument or to bear with a sibling or to practice riding their bicycle. And we are encouraging our children to do these things because there are deeper joys and deeper freedoms and deeper relationships that can only come to you when you look past your present happiness and your present comfort for a future deeper delight. And even though the reality that you are trying to practice or trying to love or trying to learn your way into can seem so very far and distant, just setting your feet on that difficult journey is something that could shape you and build your character. And that's why we tell our children, please, will you get on the bike one more time? Will you bear with your sister one more time? Will you practice loving your sister? Jesus is urging us to practice and to love and to learn living as a citizen of his kingdom because in that journey, there is even deeper delight and deeper fellowship and deeper joy and deeper blessing than if we sought our own happiness in the immediate. And that means, conversely, what Jesus is warning us of is if you focus on feasting in the present, if that is what you value, if that is where your heart is, you may miss out on that deep life with God in the present and that great feast at his banqueting table to come. And I think that Jesus is telling us all of this because he knows that in many ways living as a citizen of the kingdom, living for this new age to come, will certainly not be as easy as living for our present satisfaction. It will not be as easy as living for our present happiness only. You know, in this passage, Jesus is calling us to believe, uh, to, to be like prophets, right? That's verse 23 and 26. He's calling us to kind of be like prophets. He's calling us to tell the world of this great inbreaking kingdom, of this great kingdom to come. And you know, church, prophets of the future people who were ahead of their time, they almost always had a tougher time living than people who are living firmly in the present. Isn't that true? Prophets of the future almost always had a tougher time than people living firmly in the present. For example, I think of Van Gogh, who opened up the way to this whole new and different, beautiful stage and age of art. But in his lifetime, he was mocked, and he was poor. He couldn't sell a painting, and he was rejected. Or I think of that great existentialist writer Kafka, who was one of the first and actually most influential of the existentialist writers, but while he was alive, he was ignored, and he was never taken seriously. People who were ahead of their time, who lived ahead of their time, often found it more difficult to live than people in their time. And perhaps the greatest example of this was Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate prophet because he was a king, but he was also poor on earth. He was outcast. He was rejected. He was killed. 
And Jesus was the ultimate prophet because instead of just pointing to a new age to come, he secured it. Instead of just grasping at a new age to come, he made a way for us to enter into it. And on the cross, we see a God who wanted to bless us so very much that he took on the curse of our sin. He took on the curse of our disordered desires so that he could bring us into this life of blessing with God. You know, so for that reason, I think the cross gives us such a powerful picture of God's upside-down kingdom, right, where the way up is down. The way to become rich is to give. The way to power is to serve. The way to rule is submit. The way to live is to die to yourself. And sometimes the way to the deepest joys in life Run through tears. So church, my prayer for us today is, may we go. May we go. May we follow him further up and further into the kingdom that he is bringing. May we follow him into deeper joys and greater satisfactions and richer lives in Christ, even if they run through tears. And as we go, may we point others to this king this gracious and loving king who is willing to die for us, his people, so that we all might have the fullness of life in him. What a true blessing. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Lord and gracious Father, we, we thank you that you are this this upside-down king, this king who does not just stand over his people, does not just um, live apart from his people, but as a king who steps down to serve, to love, to live, and to die for his people. A king who, instead of wants to make himself greater and greater, becomes less and less for our sake. Lord, we pray that you teach us what it means to live out of this kingdom that you are placing on earth, this kingdom, this upside-down kingdom that you are Lord and that you reign over. Pray that as a church community that we might enter into it daily. And as a church community, we can encourage one another to continue to run that race, even though that race may run through tears and difficulties with the hope that we are running towards deeper joys and deeper delights. And in that process, might we delight with one another now. Might we delight in um, deep fellowships, in living as brothers and sisters of Christ today. All of these things we pray in your Son's most holy and precious name. Amen.